light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. And one Sunday morning, the warm sun came up and pop, out of the egg came a tiny and very hungry caterpillar. He started to look for some food. On Monday, he ate through one apple, but he was still hungry. On Tuesday, he ate through two pears, but he was still hungry. On Wednesday, he ate through three plums, but he was still hungry. On Thursday, he ate through four strawberries, but he was still hungry. On Friday, he ate through five oranges, but he was still hungry. On Saturday, he ate through one piece of chocolate cake, one ice cream cone, one pickle, one slice of Swiss cheese, one slice of salami, one lollipop, one piece of cherry pie, one sausage, one cupcake, and one slice of watermelon. That night, he had a stomach ache. The next day was Sunday again. The caterpillar ate through one nice green leaf. And he, after that, he felt much better. Now, he wasn't hungry anymore. And he wasn't a little caterpillar anymore. He was a big, fat caterpillar. He built a small house called a cocoon around himself. He stayed inside for more than two weeks. Then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon, pushed his way out, and he was a beautiful butterfly. I bet in times of your life, you've had stomach aches. I bet in times in your life, you've had struggles and times that weren't so much fun, like this little caterpillar went through. And I also bet that you came to the other side of those really tough times better, just like this caterpillar became a beautiful butterfly. God is with us, just like God was with that little caterpillar the entire time. God loves us and doesn't want to see us struggle, but when we do, hopefully beautiful transformation, just like that butterfly, happens for us. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Gracious God, I thank you for the story of this very hungry caterpillar. I thank you for what it teaches us about who you are and about who you want us to become, God. We know you are always with us in the bad times and in the good. In your name we pray, amen. Hello, adults. <laughs> I can vividly imagine the state of mind that Jacob is in when we come to this chapter of Genesis. And I bet that you can imagine it too. Jacob is afraid for his life. He knows he has done wrong by his family, and yet he's told by God that he is to go back to his homeland and to the very brother he ran from when he was afraid for his life. And that night, laying his head down for rest, with all of his family, all of his wealth, everything he loves out on ahead, I'm sure Jacob tossed and turned. Jacob was no stranger to struggle. Jacob knew struggle his entire life, beginning inside his mother Rebecca's womb with his twin Esau, where he fought and he clawed and he literally held the heel of his brother on the way out as he tried to be first. And then later, never quite being his father's favorite, he tricks his hungry brother into giving him his birthright for a bowl of stew. 
after he tricks his father into giving him Esau's blessing. And at that point, Jacob's struggles start to catch up with him. Hearing Esau's groans of anger, grief, and injustice, Jacob is urged by Rebekah, his mother, to flee. In the part of the Jacob story that we skipped, the trickster himself is tricked, this time by his own uncle, Uncle Laban. Jacob loves Rachel, and he works seven years to be able to marry her. But because Laban tricks him into marrying Leah first, Jacob must work seven more years. He matches Laban's trickery with one of his own involving livestock. And as a result, Jacob finds himself on the run once more with his wives, with his children, and all the wealth he and his family could carry. Jacob was no stranger to struggle. Now, some of it he brought on himself with the scheming ambition to get ahead in life. He felt a sort of entitlement and privilege to that which was not his. Jacob was the very definition of scrappy, someone who believed he was wronged by his birth order and then clawed and scraped his way to where he is, not really caring who he hurt in the process running away, leaving destruction in his wake. Just before chapter 32, we see a tired Jacob on the run. After things seemingly miraculously heal with his father-in-law Laban, another challenge awaits him. This time Jacob must encounter his brother. This is the same guy, remember, that he cheated twice and ran away from all of those years ago. And Jacob is terrified. He has a choice. He can turn away and never reconcile with his past. He could take all of his animals, his wives, his children in the opposite direction and just settle down in some fertile area. Or he can own up to what he did and to the long-term consequences that his actions had for his brother. And he can try to make it right. He sends word to Esau through messengers where he's been. He says, I've got all these gifts to give you. And the messengers come back. Esau, they tell him, has brought 400 men with him. Jacob's mind is reeling. Why would Esau bring that many men if he were not planning to harm or capture Jacob's family? And so Jacob decides to send his family ahead. He splits them up in hopes that if one group gets killed, the other group will be able to survive. He sends along gifts, hoping to bribe his brother Esau. Going to sleep alone that night, he must have had a lot on his mind. I've had a few nights like that, and I bet that you have too. My brain replays the day's events, and every word and every action said and unsaid, done or undone, is scrutinized. I don't know if it's the lack of distraction of daytime activities or the fact that everyone else is asleep and snoring, but nighttime. Nighttime is when all of the worries and anxieties known and unknown seem to rear their ugly head. And not just my own personal worries. My mind takes on the world's worries. I wonder what might happen as a result of our collective problems. I worry about leaving an earth that is uninhabitable for our kids. I worry about the future of our country, 
the future of the United Methodist Church, the future of racial justice. I worry if the steps that we are taking now to stop the virus are enough. I struggle with people who don't think that the disease is real and act as if it's not, gaslighting the rest of us who are trying our hardest to protect ourselves and others. I worry about those who've lost their livelihood because of a problematic economy. I worry about those who've lost businesses, who've had to shutter, some which will never open again. Even more so, I worry about those who are sick, those who have lost their lives, the friends and family that are mourning those loved ones. I worry about what happens when we don't get to get together for the closure that funerals can bring. I worry about doctors and nurses having to make most difficult choices. And I think of the ripple effects of kids not being in school. And then I start to worry about the opposite reality when we do return in person and teachers and kids and support staff get sick. I don't envy the governor. I don't envy a mayor or a school district or anybody for these decisions. Their struggle is real. I don't envy any of you who are parents trying to make the best decision for you or your kids. Your struggle is real. And sometimes, when the struggle is hardest, when the night is seemingly so long that dawn seems as if it will never come, the only thing we have to turn to is prayer. Faced with the anxiety of meeting his brother in what might be a potentially aggressive situation, Jacob stops and he prays. He reminds God of the promise that God made to his family. He acknowledges that God had brought him this far and shares in prayer his deepest fears that Esau may kill him or his family. And with that prayer and those fears on his heart, he attempts to fall asleep by the river. We read in the text that Jacob's struggle is given the form of a wrestler. And whether you read this story literally or figuratively, the struggle Jacob goes through that night is real. A human being fighting God may seem like a recipe for disaster, and yet the text tells us that Jacob prevails. Just as the sun is starting to peek up over the horizon, Jacob gains a position of advantage. And holding his attacker up, he says, I will not let you go until you give me a blessing. The figure asks Jacob's name and then gives him a new one. Names are important in scripture, and the naming of Jacob as Israel is symbolic. His original name, Jacob, literally means to supplant or to follow or literally seizing by the heel. This new name, Israel, means one who has striven with God and people and has won. It is not just a new name for Jacob. It is a new name for the people of God. It is the name for the people of Israel, one of constant striving and wrestling with God and with other people, and the rest of the First Testament will bear witness to their continued struggle as they sin, repent, get back into right relationship with God, only to have it happen all over again. Does it sound familiar? It's our story too. A cycle of struggling, of sinning, of repenting, returning back to God. 
Jacob's new name, one author suggested, may be better translated scrapper with God. And I can't hear that word scrappy without thinking of the musical Hamilton. Just like Alexander Hamilton, Jacob is scrappy and he's hungry, and that's not where the resemblance ends. Jacob, too, is problematic. He uses his smarts to get out of situations. The scripture attests that Jacob had multiple wives and even has servants. He's amassed great wealth at the cost of others. Jacob is not a good man, and yet God knew who Jacob was and blessed and used Jacob anyway. God knew that Jacob had schemed and tricked others out of what was theirs. So is this the message here? That not one of us is perfect, but even the most imperfect among us can be blessed, perhaps. But I don't feel good about that. I'm a classic people pleaser. I follow all of the rules. I get frustrated that Jacob, who has tricked and deceived almost every single member of his family, and then fled so that he wouldn't get punished, I get mad that that Jacob is now being blessed by God. But good news. Good news for me and any of you who may be struggling when the bad people of the earth get a second chance to make good. God is okay with our wrestling. Even when we wrestle with God, for when we do, we come away with greater understanding and transformed because of our encounter. Our instincts say that we possibly cannot ever wrestle with God, that God's ways are beyond our ways. God is always right. We should never question or argue with God. And yet God shows here in this text, also throughout the Psalms and other sacred writings, that struggling with the way things are is okay. Remember last week, nothing we do can ever separate us from God's love not our own questioning, not our own scheming, not our sin. Nothing can separate us from God's love. It was true for Jacob, and it's true for us today. Wrestling with God is literally blessed in this story. 2020 has not been a good year for most of us. The list of what keeps me up at night and struggling with God is long. But I want to tell you that even if no one else acknowledges it, your struggle is real. Whatever you feel right now is valid and real. Like me, you may be on this corona roller coaster of emotions, swinging wildly from, I can handle this, I've got this, to I'm about to collapse under the weight of this worry. For those who are required to work away from home and must balance how to educate their kids and earn an income, the struggle is real. We cannot love and light our way out of this situation or any of our problems. Like Jacob, our sins, corporate and individual, they've caught up with us. Racism continues to disregard life. The environment gasps for breath. Corporate and political greed outweigh the needs of our poorest friends and neighbors. These struggles are real. We as a collective people are far from perfect. And yet, like Jacob, we can be transformed. If we turn to God, acknowledge our dependence on God's character and nature, if we name our fears 
and if we struggle with God, we could be transformed, even blessed. We can go on to make amends even with those that we've harmed. Transformation can be painful, just like we learned about with the hungry little caterpillar in the children's moment. And we will not be the same as when we started. We will gain scars that will remind us of the pain that we've inflicted on ourselves and on others. Jacob walks away from the story limping, blessed and transformed. In the reading of Jacob's story and the rest of Genesis, it seems like Jacob may have come away from this encounter changed. Tragedy befalls him and his children, but we don't see any more scheming. He no longer has to flee. God did not give up on Jacob or on God's people, no matter what they did. And God does not give up on us either. God invites us to wrestle and then to see what we can learn from that struggle. In a few moments, we get to come once again to this table, to the ultimate symbol of God working with us to build bridges across sin to a life flourishing with Christ, even building bridges between us and God and each other. I hope that you'll take this time in a few moments to share in the bread and cup, to pray, to leave your sins at the altar, to bring your struggles to a God who loves us enough to hear them all and to handle them all, even when the one we're struggling with is God. In the name of the one who transforms, the name of the one who redeemed us, and the name of the one who sustains us in the struggle. Amen.